Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of February, St. Evans is supporting Canal Cafeteria, a nonprofit that provides sliding scale fresh produce bags to the Lower East Side neighborhood of New York City. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women of color run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop vintage. 
do good and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that is finally going to give you what you've been asking for. Yeah, that sounds pretty menacing. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 58, and it's it's our first episode of Consumption Month, which other people like to call March. We have so much in this episode. It is just jam-packed full of stuff. I felt like I really had to just shoot for the moon since we skipped last Sunday's episode. You know, I had to make it up to you. We have several phone messages, a visit from Meg, the content producer of Clotheshorse.world, and the main event is part one of three, yes, three parts of my conversation with Tia and Rebecca of Old Flame Mending. Today, we'll be talking about the difference between mending and tailoring, how Tia and Rebecca started a mending business, and the challenges and joys of running a business with your best friend. This is a perfect way to launch Consumption Month because one key component of reducing our consumption of new stuff is dun, 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 making our stuff last by caring for it and mending it. So what better way to start consumption month, right? We'll be skipping the Patreon shout outs today, mostly because I have so many phone messages. <laughs> but I promise there will be a full shout out-a-thon on Sunday's episode. I just had so many hotline calls to choose from for this episode. And the point where I wanted to break up the conversation with Old Flame Mending, just it came in a little long. I mean, you know, I'm just winging it over here. <laughs> If you're interested in supporting my work on Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. You know, thank you as always to everyone who supports Clothes Horse and me, whether it's via cash money on Patreon or Venmo or Things that don't cost any money at all, like leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, recommending the show to friends, even just sharing our content on Instagram. I'm so grateful for all of you. All of your support allows me to hopefully someday make Close Horse my real actual paying job. You make my dreams feel so much closer. So thank you. Thank you so much for all of your support and encouragement. All right, let's get into some phone calls because like I said... We have a lot. Our first message is from Meredith. You know her. You love her. She lives in California. Back in January, the U.S. government announced that it would ban the import of cotton and tomatoes from Xinjiang, 
where Uyghur Muslims have been imprisoned and forced to work on the production of cotton and somehow also tomatoes. Now, if you recall from previous episodes, the Uyghurs have been sent across China to work in factories that, among other things, make shoes for Nike. They've also been very clearly linked to the, to the Zara supply chain, but many, many other brands. So this ban on cotton doesn't really address that problem, but it does address the farming of cotton. And this is pretty significant because it's estimated that 20% of the global cotton supply chain comes from Xinjiang. And last year, U.S. retailers imported $9 billion worth of cotton goods from China. I mean, this is a big deal. Scott Nova is the executive editor of the Workers' Rights Consortium, one of my favorite organizations out there advocating for workers and just really humans across the world. He said, quote, any global apparel brand that is not either out of Xinjiang already or plotting a very swift exit is courting legal and reputational disaster. The days when any major apparel brand can safely profit from Xinjiang cotton are over. But, you know, I, I would jump in here and say, I agree, Mr. Nova, but as far as we know, no one has been able to confirm that any of these brands are definitely doing this. And my fear, and this is just me putting on my tinfoil hat and getting conspiracy oriented as I like to do sometimes, my fear is that many brands just think this will blow over and we'll all forget about it in a few months. I mean, let's be honest, it seems as if a lot of companies are playing that same game with the pay up movement, as we've seen so many brands not budge at all. Um, and I would urge you to Check that list of who has refused to pay up. You can find that in the link tree on the Close Horse Podcast Instagram. I check it continuously because I want to ensure that none of those companies ever get a dime from me ever again. But when it comes to the forced labor of the Uyghurs and this cotton and really just using this forced labor in the supply chain at all, like I said, I think these brands think we're going to forget about it, and then they can go back to buying cotton from Xinjiang and using factories that are probably super cheap, actually, because they use forced labor, so they don't have to pay any workers. And I I don't want us to forget about this, and I still – I haven't talked about this in a few episodes, so I'm glad that Meredith brought this back in front of me and reminded me that I need to continue to speak about this regularly it's not getting enough attention. And I do believe it's because so many organizations, so many media outlets, countries are afraid of China. I realize this is a very long intro to Meredith's message. We haven't even listened to it yet. But her message is about how this ban on cotton has affected the industry. So let's take a listen. Hey, Amanda, this is Meredith. Uh, giving you a call. I kind of have a follow-up to what's going on in China with the Uyghurs. Um, recently, we have had an issue with our vendors who supply domestic cotton knitwear. So a lot of the mills here in Los Angeles are knitwear mills, and for the most part, they make 100% cotton um, PFD fabric. 
So we use French terry, fleece, jerseys, all of that stuff every day for our products. So it's our main fabric choice, 100% cotton. So uh, we've noticed lately that our vendors will not commit to prices um, unless you place a PO the same day. And that's because prices of cotton have skyrocketed. Because of the outcry of the world about the Uyghur situation and how terrible it is, they basically have shut down their own cotton production and in turn bought up pretty much the entire world's cotton supply. So they basically went to India, went to Pakistan, and were like, hey, we're China. We're a big country with a lot of money. We are going to buy up all of your cotton. And as such, anyone else that is looking to purchase cotton is kind of at a loss right now. So it's having major ripple effects in the industry. So, you know, obviously great that China has abandoned Hopefully, the persecution of the Uyghurs, I'm going to say that they haven't, but um, at least the cotton portion of the business is closed, at least temporarily. Um, but on the other side, we have this ripple effect where it's affecting small businesses um, and basically business all around the world, because even though synthetics dominate most fast fashion, cotton is still used by a lot of brands and a lot of companies. So um, just thought that was interesting and figured I would share. Hope you're doing well, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. As I was listening to Meredith's message, I was reminded of something that happened about 10 years ago, and it's all about cotton, and the story is going to sound so familiar. So you know, cotton has always been the like go-to natural fabric for the garment industry. But in 2011, prices reached their highest in 140 years. Well, why? Well, because demand for clothing and therefore cotton fell substantially during the 2008 economic crisis. It always starts there, right? This really hurt the economies of the world's three biggest producers of cotton that were already hurting from the ripple effect of the financial crisis and the recession. So that was China, India, and the good old United States. In 2009, China and India, who really relied on access to cotton and also the, you know, the, the cultivation of cotton to keep their economies moving, they began to buy up all the local cotton that was being grown to protect their farmers because it was really important that when this economic crisis passed, that these cotton farmers were still around. This kind of pushed up cotton prices artificially as, you know, suddenly there was more demand for other countries who didn't who didn't have access to that bought cotton. To make matters worse, weather conditions in 2011 led to a shortage of cotton, driving up prices even more. So China bought even more cotton including a substantial portion of the cotton grown here in the U.S. And by the end of that year, the cost of cotton garments increased by about 11%. That doesn't sound like a lot of money, but as we talk about here a lot, designing and buying garments, you know, like on the wholesale side of it, is all about pinching pennies. And remember also, like, in 2011, the economy had not recovered. Like maybe it was in the midst of it, but it, it wasn't there yet. So people 
were still not having a ton of disposable income. As you may have guessed, this sort of decline in sales that came from the financial crisis, coupled by this increase in cotton pricing, really squeezed smaller brands who couldn't afford to pay that premium, especially when their sales were lower in the first place. And larger companies, well, I think we know what happened there. But to recap, maybe this is the first episode you've listened to. Brands began shifting their assortments into synthetic fibers. You know, all the great poly blends, right? For one, they were a lot less expensive to make. But even more important, after the financial crisis of 2008, and well, kind of during, but for years after, customers had an increased appetite for cheap and cheerful clothing. It sort of began, that appetite for cheap clothing began in 2008 as sales just came crashing down as the economy tanked. And so everything that retailers already had had to sell on sale. But a year later, Customers still wanted those hot prices, so rather than marking down product and losing profit margin, retailers just made stuff with that low price in mind. And this is really when we saw the meteoric rise of fast fashion as we know it, an entire industry built off of the idea of cheap and cheerful. Retailers thought that the synthetic fabrics would be a temporary thing, that when cotton became more affordable and customers also had more income, that they would return to buying natural fibers because why wouldn't they? But actually, no one cared. Customers didn't even notice. And, you know, to be fair, the hand feel and the sort of sensory quality of synthetic fabrics has changed substantially since the 70s, right? When you could see a garment and know it was polyester, you didn't even have to touch it. So brands were like, "Hmm, okay, well, you're telling me I can return to my normal prices and use this cheaper fabric and therefore make more profit per unit sold? Well, all right, sign me up. And what now it's 2021 and two thirds of the clothing made and sold is synthetic. My worry is that this cotton shortage or perceived cotton shortage, I guess, this these higher prices in cotton, I guess to be more accurate, could push that number even higher, which is really bad for the planet. It's really bad for us as customers too. It's really bad for the people who make those clothes and make those fabrics. While I do think the U.S. did the right thing by banning the import of Xinjiang cotton, I also don't think that's enough. After all, China just bought up all the other cotton, and it doesn't address the larger problem of, you know, imprisoning and enslaving an entire group of people. Chinese cotton is also used to make clothing for export in other countries, such as Bangladesh and Vietnam. So this action doesn't really eliminate the tainted, that's a melodramatic word, but it was the best word I could come up with, the tainted cotton supply chain, because that cotton is still being used and it's still coming into our country and other countries as well. The UN needs to take stronger action here. I also think the cotton thing is just a bluff on China's part to sort of teach the US a lesson. Because China is a tough adversary here. This is not an easily solved crisis, unfortunately. They are the world's factory. How do we, and by we, I mean the rest of the world, hold them accountable for human rights violations when they are such an integral part 
of everything that touches our lives, whether it's medication, clothing, electronics, furniture, fabrics, beauty products. I mean, I could go on and on and on. We have cat and dog food coming from China. Apparently, they're growing a ton of tomatoes. This this is not an easy problem to solve. And it's it would be tough for me if I was working over at the UN right now and they asked me to just take care of this, to be honest. But we cannot forget about this and we cannot become like psychically numb to it just because the problem is too big to solve easily. And on the topic of forced labor, I want to share this little current events nugget featuring Boohoo, which also includes Pretty Little Thing, Nasty Gal, Karen Millen, and Oasis. Not the band, the store. According to the Sourcing Journal, which is as exciting normally as the name might imply, Boohoo is seeing a decrease in its stock prices thanks to a revelation that the U.S. may be banning and seizing any Boohoo merchandise that comes into the United States due to allegations of forced labor in its supply chain. Once again, when we say forced labor, we're saying slavery, okay? U.S. Customs and Border Protection has, quote, seen enough evidence to launch an investigation after receiving a set of petitions lobbying for the exclusion of apparel and apparel-related products, quote, produced wholly or in part by forced labor by factories operating in the area of Leicester East in England and sold by Boohoo and, of course, all of its sub-brands. Investigators actually speculate that 50% of Boohoo's total inventory is made in Leicester. So this means that the odds of you buying something that was made by slave labor is pretty high. Now, this is not the first time Boohoo has come under fire for its treatment of workers in Leicester. Last year, late spring, I would say, an investigation was launched after an extraordinary spike in COVID cases amongst its workers. A third-party audit that was literally commissioned by Boohoo, so they paid this company to audit them, that audit concluded that these reports were, quote, substantially true, meaning there was a very strong likelihood that Boohoo was endangering its garment workers by not providing enough adequate safety protections against COVID. And that the company's own monitoring of the situation, quote, had many failings in the Lester supply chain because of, quote, weak corporate governance. Once again, this company was paid to do this audit and they're like, oh, my God, like you do not care about your workers. While there was technically no evidence that the group committed any criminal offenses, the lack of regard for its employees was pretty strong. The same report said, quote, Boohoo has not felt any real sense of responsibility for their factory workers in Leicester. And the reason is a very human one. It's because they are largely invisible to them. Once again, this report was written by a company that Boohoo paid to do this third-party audit. So this is just how bad it was. You know, I don't often tell you to definitely do this 
or not do that because I want you to make the decisions that are right for you. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Please don't buy anything from Boohoo and don't let your friends do it either. And that would include all of their brands. I mean, when you get to the root of it, all of their clothes are super cheap, right? Do you know how and why they're able to offer such hot, hot deals? Because they literally are not paying their workers because they're using forced labor. And I also just want to call out, we're talking about forced labor happening in the UK. It's not all just like in China or in other countries in the way that we like to imagine it. It can happen anywhere. Furthermore, even if they are paying these employees somewhat, which clearly they're not, if our own Customs and Border Protection wants to get involved on this, they were not protecting these workers from COVID. I mean, these people are disposable to them, or as the third-party audit said, they are largely invisible to them. Boohoo and all of its like subsidiary brands rely on the U.S. market for more than one-fifth of its annual revenue. And in 2020, that same year, their workers were coming down with COVID at an extraordinary rate. The company raked in $368 million from U.S. shoppers, which was almost a 60% increase from the previous year. So let's unpack that again. For most of 2020, we were in a pandemic. We were in a global economic crisis. Yet Boohoo saw this growth in their sales from U.S. customers. Why? Because their clothes are so cheap. And see, this is something that I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of this becoming even bigger because this is what happened after the 2008 financial crisis. Fast fashion, as we know it, blew up. Clothes got cheaper. They lasted for a smaller amount of time. They were made of more synthetic fabrics. They became more disposable in our minds. And of course, workers were paid less and less and worked in worse and worse conditions. While massive brands made tons and tons of money, I'm afraid that as the economy recovers, we're going to buy even more fast fashion and throw away even more of it and more workers are going to be exploited. So this is a really great time to talk to the people in your life, to talk to yourself even and say, why would I buy something from Boohoo? I don't want clothes made by slaves. I don't want clothes made by someone who is so poorly regarded by their employer that they don't even care about protecting them from COVID. We have to break the habit and we have to get the others around us to see. It's cheap because someone didn't get paid. We got to stop that growth right now. Okay, well, speaking of shady fast fashion, our next message is from Hannah. Hey, Amanda. I had a question because I've been seeing more and more people say that they are having issues on specifically online secondhand apps like Depop or Poshmark or something like that of people essentially taking advantage of the fact that vintage, like 70s, 60s stuff is coming back into style and so they'll buy new products from AliExpress or Shein or any of those, like, extremely cheap websites and then post it on Depop or Poshmark 
for an upcharge by saying it's vintage because it looks like that because that's the style that they're going for. And essentially just like ripping off someone who is trying their best to shop more sustainably or just really loves vintage fashion. And the money is still going back towards these awful companies. I really don't know a whole lot about it, but you are the expert at researching things or finding someone who knows the answer. Um, but I guess maybe like, I don't know what's going on over there or even just like, how do we as a consumer not fall for those tricks and then end up with what we think is this really original vintage piece that is actually just cheap, cheaply made products using slave labor, essentially. So just a question. Um, Yeah. Thanks. I'm so glad that Hannah called because I have been noticing this a lot lately. Brand new stuff listed on Poshmark and eBay. And not like, oh, I bought this and it's too late for me to return it. That's why it has the tags on. Or this, like someone's buying a pallet of returns and selling them off. No, this is stuff that is like not a recognizable brand. The size charts are really weird or the garment is marked one size and the prices all seem way too good to be true. In a lot of ways, this is reminding me of how I would describe fast fashion in the first place. I mean, I would say, okay, eBay does sell tons of new stuff. People have all kinds of things going on that allow them to sell like closeouts and whatnot. So I don't think there's anything untoward going on there. But I have found sellers on Poshmark. After I listened to Hannah's message, I went on Poshmark and started digging around. And I would find sellers that seem to be running a pretty solid business who are exclusively selling brand new fast fashion of the Shein variety, possibly using the drop shipping model that we have seen similar sellers use on Etsy. I I don't want to order something from them just to find out what happened, but I am super curious These sellers don't seem to be trying to obscure the fact that this stuff is brand new, but they also aren't broadcasting it either. And I do get bummed because Poshmark is supposed to be all about secondhand, and I can see how selling really cheap brand new stuff makes it hard for legit resellers to also make a living. But then again, Poshmark is also letting free people sell directly to its customers brand new stuff, right? So I know Poshmark is not really about sustainability at its core, right? I mean, if they were, then they wouldn't be encouraging sellers to buy their branded and completely brand new, probably not sustainable packaging. In fact, I think Poshmark has actually stigmatized reusing packaging, which I find infuriating. But like I said, I guess Poshmark It's pretty clear when you use Poshmark that it's not a sustainability app, right? But I think we need to crowdsource some answers here. How do you spot a fake vintage item on these reselling platforms? Because I haven't encountered that, but I believe it. I believe that it's out there. And have you ever accidentally bought one? I would love to hear about that. Or if you've seen one, send me the link so I can share it with everyone. Let's share our experiences and wisdom here to prevent this from happening to other members of the community. I mean, that's, that's what teamwork's all about, right? 
You can send me an email at amanda at closehorse.world, or you can call the hotline and leave a message. And that number is 717-925-7417. And of course, you can also record a voice memo and email it to me. I have one more message from Kate of Undone by Kate, but I'm doing something a little different here, something we've never done before. I'm saving it for the end of the episode. So next, Meg, the content producer of Clotheshorse.world, dropped by for a little convo about the blog. If you've contributed already, then you've already worked with Meg because she's the person who helps shape your idea into a post. And she is killing it. I mean, all of you are because I can't believe how much amazing content we've released already. I'm so proud of every post that has been posted, I guess, at this point. So let's get to know Meg. Hi, everybody. I'm Meg. I'm the content producer on Clotheshorse.world. Um, so basically, I'm your biggest cheerleader that you don't know yet, maybe. <laughs> um, I've been enjoying everyone's submissions so far. I love getting all your emails and your ideas. You know, I haven't, you know, seen a bad idea yet, honestly. So I really encourage you to reach out. Um, and it's, it's just really fun to work with people and help them, you know, develop all these amazing projects and pieces and written work. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the final, um, products by now on the blog and, and it all looks really good. And it's because, you know, we're such a collaborative team, you know, working with Carrie, our editor and, and Haley, who you've heard from our, our design lead. So, you know, we're, we're here to help you out and, and help you show off everything that you've been working on this pandemic or thinking about. So one thing that I, I've encountered a lot is like someone will reach out to me on Instagram, like telling me a story or an experience they had. And I always say, Oh my God, that'd be so cool for you to share on close horse that world. And these people will always say, I'm not much of a writer or I'm not very good at writing, or I don't think anybody wants to read that. What do you say to those people? What I would say to those people is no one is as good at writing as you think they are. Um, <laughs> Amen. And a lot, really, and that's because, <laughs> you know, nobody really accomplishes anything by themselves, right? It's all about mm -hmm. teamwork, and we have a really supportive community. So you're a better writer than you think you are. And also we're going to be able to help you edit, spot those random typos and just help you amplify your voice and make you sound good and look good. Cause that's really what our goal is. Um, so don't put so much pressure on yourself. Don't tell yourself you can't do it before you even try. That's what I would say. You're going to do it. <laughs> you're gonna do yeah. I mean, I think that's really important to call out that everything you read across the internet many people have touched it before it got to your mm -hmm. eyes, you know, and we have a whole team here that wants to help polish everyone's work and make sure their ideas come, like reach their full potential. What is some stuff that you are hoping to see, you know, be contributed over the next couple of months? That is such a good question. You know, I'm really uh, enjoying all of um, the outfit repeaters and, like, thrifted finds that I see across Instagram. You know, we have some really talented, you know, secondhand hunters out there that, you know, find all the coolest stuff. And I really like to hear everyone's stories behind all their special garments and objects and talismans that they encounter. I'm also really interested just to hear what people are 
are thinking about and, you know, how they react to what you talk about on the pod, different episodes, you know, like all the conversations you have are so great. So if we could just expand on that and, and hear from more people, like what their reactions are, you know, I'm trying to think of some different sort of um, features we could do that would be able to capture that, you know, because as we're all listening, right, you know, whether on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, you know, we're all like having, you know, our own reactions and thoughts. And, you know, it's like we're sort of a part of the conversation. So I want to bring everyone else listening more into that conversation. I think the blog is a really great opportunity for that. Totally. And we've been brainstorming as a team, like what are more ways that we can foster conversation on the blog? And I mean, I, I would say to anybody listening to this, we want to hear your ideas because, mm-hmm. you know, there's just four of us, you know, like <laughs> pounding our head on the wall. Like, what are other ideas? I don't know. I'm running out of ideas. So, you know, <laughs> I've been really, I've been really excited about anti-brunch society um, oh and God, all yeah. the incredible answers, like so thoughtful that we've been getting from everyone. And so I can tell that our community is so smart and mm-hmm. so thoughtful and just so full of ideas. And I just am constantly like, what are more ways that we can get those out there for everyone to see? Agreed. And you bring up such a good point, Amanda. Like, please share it with us your ideas. You know, just because, you know, you think it's old hat doesn't mean that we've already thought of it. You know, I think you brought up a good point. Everyone in our community is really smart and well-informed, and we're all learning from each other, and that includes everybody working on the blog and the pod. So, like, tell us your idea. There's a good chance we haven't thought of it yet or we haven't, you know, put a new spin on it yet. So definitely reach out. Um, We want to hear from you. Totally. And I, you know, I'm obsessed with hearing about people's personal experiences, and I definitely want us to have a lot more of that on the blog. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like our personal experiences that make us who who we are and shape our beliefs and our behaviors. And, you know, I love learning about people. That's like my favorite kind of content to read. So if there's something about you, something about your story, something about what you do or you're really passionate about, I I mean, reach out to us because we want to read it and we want to share it with everyone else. I think we live in this really weird time that just seems to be going on and on (laughs) where we're so distanced from one another. And I really want the blog to be a hub for all of us to feel that sense of community and get to know one another in this virtual way. Because I think we were talking about this on the department the other day, actually, that we think the way we view like a scene, a community, if you will, is going to Mm -hmm. change so much thanks to the pandemic that we will no longer think about only being closely involved with the people who are near us geographically, but that we are building these huge relationships that are very strong and important that have nothing to do with where we live. And uh, Absolutely. I want, I want close horse world to be that, you know? Oh, totally. And it's so good that we're all thinking more globally now, not only for our people, our communities, but for the planet as well. It's a really excellent, you know, mind shift. And to that point, you know, about sharing your personal story, I personally have found it very therapeutic to do a lot of writing, especially about, Mm -hmm. you know, certain things that have happened to me that I've maybe felt a little bit more vulnerable in the past. And it 
it's better, you know, it feels better and, you know, the the good vibes are longer lasting than like an impulse purchase or something like that. And and having the courage, challenging yourself to share that story with other people, I think you're going to be surprised at what the reactions are like and and how welcoming people are and how much they want to share in your triumph. And, you know, if it's something you're down about or something bad that you've, you know, survived, you know, people want to be there for you and they want to empathize with you and, like, you know, talk to you about it and, and learn from you and, and and admire you. So give yourself that opportunity. It's, it's a really amazing feeling, one that you definitely, like, can't purchase online no matter how hard I've tried. <laughs> it's true. It's so much better than impulse shopping ever will be. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which Especially is, as we know, talk about consumerism this month. Yes, exactly. As I was going to say, it's consumption month. And so it's all about, like, one thing I've been thinking about as I go in my own journey of reducing my consumption is, like, what are things that make me really happy or improve my mental health that have nothing to do with spending any money? And definitely writing is so helpful for me. It doesn't have to be some like tragic thing that happened to you either. It can be something great, a great change that you made and how it worked out or, you know, you started your own business and that's, this is what it was like, or you decided to pack up all your stuff and move into a van. Like there's so many different experiences that we're all having, especially in this very strange world that we live in right now. Uh, and I think there's something so magical about telling those stories to one another. Yeah, you're not alone and and people want to hear your stories and I think you brought up an excellent point. You know, we're also good at appearing like we're high functioning or be, you know, or being high functioning people while dealing with all of these, you know, challenges and stuff and difficulties, but you know, if we're able to let our guard down a little bit or or share with people, it's it's amazing the kind of connections you can make and and how much stronger you can become from, you know, just talking about your story. Yeah, it's true. If you have an idea, just just email me the second you have it. You know, ideas can be gone <laughs> with the snap of a finger. Like, don't or write it down, you know, just, like, share it with me the moment you have it. And, you know, let's start a conversation or reach out on Instagram. You know, we love to see all of the interaction and the content and, and have the fun little conversations, you know. Like, it doesn't matter how small it is. Reach out with your idea if you have an idea of, like, you know, like, who's your style icon or why you're rewatching Sex in the City right now and, <laughs> and the, you know, the flashback to early odds fashion. Like, just tell us what you're up to. And, and most likely we're up to some of the same things. And, you know, we can make something cool out of it. So yeah. just talk to me. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so they can email you two ways, right? They can email you yeah. at submissions at closehorse.world or mm-hmm. uh, just email you directly at meg at closehorse.world or yep. email me and then I'll just add Meg, which happens too. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You can find me all three ways. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you, I'm going to tell everyone who's listening though, that if you DM me on Instagram, I'm going to tell you to email Meg at closehorse.world. Mm-hmm. So just skip that step. Just go right for it. You, We all have email on our phone. Just get it out right now. We don't care if it's all, if it's unpunctuated and in lowercase, just send it. Well, you know. Oh, yeah. We'll work it out. We'll edit it later. Yeah. And and DMs are fun, but, like, email's just so much easier to keep track of. Yeah, yeah. So. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. And I also say to everyone, you know, like, 
there's so much going on and I don't want anyone to fall through the cracks because you're all super important to us. So mm-hmm. email is the best way to ensure that that happens. It's not a 100% guarantee, right? But it will, oh, yeah. it's the best chance that we're not going to miss your email because hearing from you is really important to us. Thank you so much for dropping by, Meg. This is your first time. Yeah, I don't think thanks. you've even called the hotline before, have you? I know, I haven't. I'm such a lurker, so I'm challenging myself <laughs> to, like, engage more. Just like I want to challenge all of you out there. It's not as scary as you think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming by. So are you stoked to contribute to World now? Because, remember, it's the first blog by the community for the community featuring the community. So let's together change what good style and a good life means for the rest of the world. As a reminder, you can send your idea to submissions at closeforce.world. It doesn't need to be like a huge essay. It can just be a few sentences about a concept that you have. So reaching out to us with your idea is the easiest part, actually. You can also go straight to the source with meg at closeforce.world. Or you can email me at amanda at closehorse.world and I'll add Meg. I can't wait to see what all of you do because already all of the content that's come from the community, even the stuff that's like a work in progress right now, it's so cool. I feel so lucky to be getting to know all of you because you're all really awesome. (laughs) Okay, let's get to the main event. Part one of what I think will be a three-part conversation with Tia and Rebecca, the women and sewing machine hoarders behind Old Flame Mending. I've posted on Instagram in the past, and I'll say it again. Mending your clothing is a political act because mending your clothing, making it last, it's a statement against waste and rampant consumerism. You're saying to the world, nothing is disposable, everything is worth maintaining. And I agree. Whether it's a $10 dress or a $1,000 dress, it's worth making it last. And the data exists to prove this. It's not just a feeling. There's real science there. You know, I love to get out the calculator and start to break it down. So I've talked about this. I don't think I've talked about it for a long time, but six out of 10 garments which is 60% if you're a percentage-aholic, heads off to the landfill or the incinerator in the same year it was made. If the average life of those garments was extended by just three months, which three months is like nothing, like three months ago, it was Christmas, okay? It would reduce the carbon and water footprints as well as the waste generation of our total clothing usage, the clothing industry, by 5 to 10%. And 5 to 10% doesn't sound like a 10 to you, especially if we use our normal scale of like, if that was a grade we got in a test, how grounded will we be? Okay, that doesn't sound like a lot. But sometimes you have to think about the scale of a problem. And then 5 to 10% is a lot more powerful. So how about this? The apparel industry is a massive producer of greenhouse gases. You're probably not surprised to hear that. Think about all that stuff that's traveling by airplane, right? According to MIT's Material Systems Laboratory, quote, industry-wide greenhouse gas emissions in one year, and they're talking about the fashion industry here, are equivalent to driving to the sun and back more than 1,000 times. 
Um, and by the way, the sun is, are you ready? 92.145 million miles from the earth. So we're talking a lot of driving. So on that scale, 10% is pretty massive, right? So is 5%. I'm so excited for you to meet Rebecca and Tia. You know, my hope is that today's section of the conversation, maybe it will inspire you to start your own business, maybe even a mending business in your own town because we need more. Maybe it'll inspire to extend the life of your clothing. I know some of you are itching for some mending lessons, and I promise that they're coming in the next parts of this conversation. But today we're going to focus on why mending is important and how that is different from tailoring and so much more. So let's get into it. Today, I'm being joined by the dynamic duo behind Old Flame Mending, and I'm really excited that they're going to talk to us today because every time I put a like an Instagram story up where I say, hey, like, what would you like to see an episode about? It's like 97 people say mending, and then one person says something else. So <laughs> everybody is eagerly awaiting the mending zone. So why don't the two of you introduce yourself? Um, so I'm Rebecca Harrison. And I'm Tia Tuminello. And we're, we're Old Flame, Flame Mending. Stop. You two are too cute. <laughs> We've had practice doing that. <laughs> <laughs> we so, have a Mary-Kate and Ashley thing going on. Oh, I mean, obviously. <laughs> are you two wearing matching outfits right now, too? Not today. But oh. Sometimes yeah. we weirdly coordinate. Usually at a pop up or like (laughs) (laughs) So I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you have a business that does mending, (laughs) as the name would would explain uh, or indicate, I guess. Uh, How did you get into mending as a business? Um, so yeah, we've both been sewing for a while and we both just love thrifting and fashion and vintage clothes. Um, and we both really like to work with our hands. We're both pretty tactile and we were working together at Whole Foods. Um, we were in different departments. Tia was in bakery. I was in prepared (laughs) foods. If the people must know. (laughs) I was going to ask. I needed to know. (laughs) detail. Um, but yeah, we always like, we're kind of aware of each other, but we like kind of slowly got to know each other and realized that we liked a lot of the same things. Um, and I do remember like my first time seeing Rebecca at Whole Foods, she had sashiko patches on her knees, like on her, oh. the knees of her pants. And I remember thinking like, oh, I like to do that too. And you don't really like see that as often in Pittsburgh. So I knew like, oh, Becca like needs to become my friend. And we need to start uh, talking about Sashiko together and oh mending. God. Did you I know that? no idea. That you that. Oh. <laughs> that is, wow. Um, 
Well, <laughs> Tia was wearing a lot of like really like crazy printed pants at the time. Like donut <laughs> pants and like a lot of like just really wild patterns. Um, so that was, yeah, I think we like noticed each other's pants first before anything. <laughs> I mean, I do think that is really interesting. We're already going off the rails here, but (laughs) I feel like especially, and I hate to make like gender-based assumptions here or statements, but I've noticed that with a lot of women, they're sort of the first time they met someone's story, especially if it's a really good friend, there's always something related to how they dressed involved in that story. Yeah. So true. I mean, right. We had to wear chef's coats, so we really were limited. We could express ourselves. (laughs) Oh, and Tia also had these like really amazing clogs. They were like these like hot pink clogs too. Ooh, yeah, that's zazzy. (laughs) Um, But anyway, um, so at that time, I was teaching some sewing classes to supplement my income. Um, and I had, I had gone to SCAD and I studied fibers and design for sustainability. So um, I moved back to Pittsburgh afterwards and I was always just like working multiple jobs at one time um, to make money and support myself, but also to just like work with textiles and fashion in some way. Um, Whole Foods was like kind of my bread and butter, but then like, yeah, I just wanted to like carve out my space in Pittsburgh as an artist and maker. Um, And so in addition to working at Whole Foods um, from the time I graduated, I worked some like really like wild jobs. Like I worked at an alpaca farm. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did some teaching gigs. I worked at a screen printing company. I did costume design. I was a stylist for stitch fix. And then I worked at a tailoring shop that is like kind of when things clicked and I was like, Oh, I really like enjoy kind of like custom work because everything's every day is different. Um, and there really aren't a ton of jobs in Pittsburgh readily available for someone who studied fibers. So I was just always trying to create my career, my own career path. And I just like, I knew that I wanted to work for myself at some point. And what about you, Tia? I mean, I was always interested in fiber arts and sewing. Like I'm a short person. I'm only five one. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to learn quickly how to like hem my pants, hem my sleeves, take things in. And I was given like an 80s Kenmore, I think in like middle school. And it stayed with me until college. Like I was, I just liked to sew. Um, but I attended Temple University for art education and um I thought education was going to be my path, but I did find myself always wanting to take like the fiber department electives and I wanted to do that stuff too. Like I just didn't want to choose one thing that was always really hard for me. Um, So yeah, I was kind of like working in schools for a while or trying to like stay focused to art education. Um, Yeah, and sewing just never seemed like a career option for me. So I always kept it as kind of like a side job or just like a passion project. 
And it wasn't until meeting Rebecca in other makers in Pittsburgh where I saw potential to use sewing as a skill and really start something. Um, And we both struggled with how to get started. We came together because we both liked fiber arts, but we just didn't know where to take it. We thought about making like sewing kits or uh, do we start a natural dye line? That was really popular to us at the time. And Yeah, we like always just really wanted to work together creatively, but we we weren't quite sure how to. Um, and I, I taught a class at this store called Make and Matter, which was like a really amazing store. They were a um, like a, a boutique that sold all things made by um, people who lived in Pittsburgh and worked out of Pittsburgh. Um, and I'd like to give a shout out to Rebecca Joy of Flutz Bene because she's really the one who like kind of jump started us. Because um, she came and was like, "Do you want to?" do like a mending pop-up at the store sometime. And then I like immediately called Tia and I was like, I think this is like what our calling is kind of. (laughs) Um, We were doing pop-ups at Make and Matter. And then um, we also set up a booth at a vintage fair in Pittsburgh, which like that was like really great because there were, you know, a lot of people with vintage clothes that had these random tears and holes in them. Um, and then before COVID even hit, we signed up to have a booth at one of the local farmers markets. Um, Cause we were like, Oh, like this is our, like farmers market people are kind of our niche. Um, mm-hmm. And that ended up being such a blessing because make and matter ended up having to close permanently um, because of COVID Um, which, yeah, it's like, it's such a loss in this community. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the, yeah, Rebecca Joy of Flex Bene and the other two women who started it are like all, you know, doing their own thing. And I think they're all going to be fine and they're like thriving, honestly. So, um, but I mean, yeah, just having like a place, a physical place for all of these, like talented makers to come together is like I think really special and I hope that something new comes out of that post-COVID but um yeah we um we had we like really hit it off with the farmer's market it was a great crowd for us because people who are concerned about where their food comes from are also concerned about the life cycle of their garments and um it turned out that like in 2020 more than ever people want to support local and you know a lot of us weren't really sure what the farmer's market was going to be like until um until it was in full swing and it turned out to be the best year for farmer's markets and (laughs) I bet more people cooking you know totally yeah Yeah. and yeah it was like almost like a like a social outing for people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we saw a lot of friends there um and it was just it was yeah. just really great. Like we just really ended up being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. I think people felt safe being outside versus like inside at a grocery store. So 
Mm-hmm. I, it did get a lot of foot traffic and it did feel like a social event and we got to like show off our masks to each other and it was still, <laughs> it was still a way to connect. And that was really important to us. And it gave our business, um, you know, the platform to shine a little bit brighter. I mean, what, what an incredible story, but like, I mean, I just get so excited when I talk to people and like their dreams have sort of been flourishing during the pandemic, you know, I mean, we have a lot of guests on the podcast like that. And it, it just makes me so happy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like kind of guilty about it. Cause I know that there are a lot of people, you know, like yourself who are, are unemployed right now. And it's been like really tough. And also to anyone who's listening to this, please support Amanda on Patreon. Like <laughs> that's really important. I think cause we were both being we were both known as the sewing people in our friends and in our family. So that really draws a lot of attention because it's so niche and people just offered us like full up sewing machines. People are giving us boxes of threads and like all these sewing notions, fabric, um, really everything. So we had a good amount of supplies to start the business. And once we got the platform to do so, it just really took off. It's so interesting to me how much like excess sewing supplies there is in the world right now. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that people gave you enough stuff to start a business because every thrift store out here is so full of it. Like, I don't know what's happening. Like, are people like sort of over consuming like craft supplies in the same way they do like fast fashion? And then they are like, oh, I actually, you know, I don't want to make a quilt anymore or crochet or scrapbook or something. It's so there's. Yeah, maybe it's a double edged sword here because I mean, I also think it's generational. Like, maybe that was the mindset back in the day. And because a lot of these supplies at thrift stores, like the threads and these notions, they don't look new. Like they mm-hmm. look like they've been sitting mm-hmm. in an attic. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's tempting to buy it because it looks cool and it's thread, but a lot of the time it breaks or yeah, it's like just really crappy polyester mm-hmm. thread mm-hmm. or just smelly. Yes. Yeah. I thought it smelly thread. I thought I was the only one. so why is mending important to you so I think mending is important just because it extends the life of textiles and garments um I personally was always kind of struggling with the idea of being a maker and just putting more things out into the world when there's just already so much stuff being created and neglected. Um, now, I mean, that's to say that there are a lot of like really talented makers who are making things that people should buy and that like have a lot of value and that, you know, have, uh, I, I think, you know, they like have like a, a longer lifespan to them than fast fashion. I also just really like that mending can extend the life of anything from an heirloom quilt to a pair of really great Levi 501s to like a sweater that you bought at a thrift store to like even a dress that you bought at forever 21 last year and isn't holding up. Like mending is just so anti elitist Mm -hmm. and you can almost turn fast fashion into slow fashion through mending. 
Um, not that you should justify buying fast fashion because of vending <laughs> and um, but like it can help a garment be a little bit less disposable. Definitely. Definitely. I feel like, you know, we're programmed to like, oh, these clothes are cheap, so we should just throw them out. And that, mm. I mean, yes, some of the stuff is not repairable, but a lot of it is. And I think it's responsible to extend the life of it. Ask me how many th- times I've like had to fix a Zara shirt. I have this one Zara shirt that I've seriously mended like 30 times. Just is what it is what sometimes, is you know? That's so impressive. (laughs) Well, I mean, think about it. It's like mostly made of plastic, so it's going to last a few hundred years. So I'm just trying to really like take it on a journey through life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't let it die. Right, right. But it's like fast fashion and disposable have become synonyms, but they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we should fix our fast fashion clothes because most clothes – are actually fast fashion anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We got so many jeans from Madewell. <laughs> and people think that that company is so high quality. Like it's literally called Madewell. But <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, the name would imply something better. <laughs> what a sick burn though. <laughs> It's like astonishing how many pairs of like black skinny jeans we have mended from Madewell. And I feel like they would be harder, right? Because so many of them are like a poly or a spandex blend. I would just assume that's harder to mend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It like gets like kind of like bubbly because like it gets in a certain part. I mean, anyone who's had a, a pair of skinny jeans knows that like when they have that spandex in there, like certain parts get stretched out and certain parts uh-huh. like the, you know, the fibers break and mm-hmm. like, yeah, like really like goofy. Um, <laughs> like kind of difficult to mend. I have this one pair of skinny jeans and one day I must have been sticking my foot through them really hard. Uh, and I do have big feet, to be fair. And I think I, like, broke the fibers right around, like, the knee calf zone because it always had this weird, like, tumor bubble forever after that. <laughs> that is the thing with those poly spandex jeans. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. I wish they would just – I wish we could go back in time and stop them from ever being invented because <laughs> – those and like graphic tees are like the bane of my existence. Like when I get really upset about like disposable clothing, those are the two things I think of because the skinny jeans are just not they're they they can't last. You know what I mean? They're just like mm-hmm. it's like a faulty premise, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and like you know, then the graphic tees. I mean, they're they're their own thing. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, I feel like the I feel like skinny jeans are like iPhones. Like they're just like built to fail, so that you have to just yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to wash and dry them constantly to get them back in their shape. But then that's breaking them down. So, like, what do you do? In a way, I'm glad that the mom jean came back because most of them are 100% cotton again, and. That's mm-hmm. like that's how you avoid these issues. And I mean, it may not like hug every curve, but you're probably gonna have those a lot longer than those like black skinny jeans from Madewell. <laughs> Despite the name. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, what a what a brand. Even like their little like heart-shaped drop off a pair of denim box in the stores. Did you ever see those? No. Yes. They have like a a denim, I don't even know what it like a pant discount. If you give them a pair of pants, they give you it's not high. I think it's like 10% off like mm-hmm. a pair of your next pair of pants. So maybe that's why we see so many people wearing Madewell is like they trick you into this like discount program. Well, also, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, and I'm very skeptical of this. I've had many people be like, oh, you don't like jeans? No, you should go try Madewell. Like, no, Madewell is the best jeans. I only wear Madewell. Like there's all this hype around the jeans. So one day, this was years ago when I was still living in LA, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go to Madewell and try on these stupid jeans <laughs> everyone's talking about. And you know what? I hated them. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't get it. How are these better than any of the other jeans I've tried on in my life? It's yeah. it's all hype. They're like – some. it's like word yeah. of mouth or something. Yeah, yeah. It's a total hype. And they run so small. Like – Yes! I know sizing, again, like, is not universal, which is an issue, but, like, the 27 Madewell feels like a size 2 in other brands, so (laughs) it's not a very kind brand if you're worried about, you know, sizing and your waist measurements, so. Do people still, like, is Madewell still relevant? Do you hear people talking about it? Mm, I don't. Yeah, I feel like people maybe are kind of, like, starting to fall out of mm-hmm. Madewell. I guess because, like, is Madewell kind of, like, a more of a mall thing than, like, a internet thing? I mean, obviously they have more presence, but... I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, like, I never see people wearing Madewell, but I know they still exist, and I know that... J. Crew wanted to set Madewell off into its own company. Maybe they succeeded because, you know, J. Crew is going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. But I know for a long time Madewell was sort of carrying that brand. But I mm-hmm. I just like don't <clears throat> I also like live now in a house in the country and the only person I talk to every day is my <laughs> husband. So I just am like, do people still go shopping at Madewell? I guess. I like I've never had the core group of friends that would be shopping there anyway, you know, but I was just, I don't know, if you're a listener and you're hearing this, could you tell us? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> like, what are the kids into? <laughs> yeah, well, and I feel like Madewell is, like, so, like, synonymous with, like, a certain aesthetic, too. Yes. Yes. Which is not my aesthetic or most of my friends, so. Yeah. I, and, yeah, yeah. Are we, like, maybe moving on from that, too? I think so. Which is not an insult to people who are obsessed with their jeans or whatever. I just – I don't think of Madewell as, like, uh, fashion-y. But, like, you know, I think if you have sort of a uniform of your own where you're, like, I wear jeans and, like, a button-up every day, like, that's probably a good option for you because it's, like, consistent. I feel like we dress differently. And I know, like, once again, I don't see any people except for on the internet. But – I feel like people have been dressing kind of jazzier lately, and I'm yeah. excited about it. Gen Z has, like, got it going on with the fashion. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, I just feel like, yes, it's, yeah, like, Madewell is just kind of, like, old looking now or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, for old millennials, yeah. you know? Yeah. Millennials and 
that you're with a lot of like anxiety about like <laughs> aging like like oh like I can't shop at Madewell because like that's like <laughs> <is> shopping <laughs> I also like I'm currently like working part-time at a coffee shop with a bunch of Gen Zers and I'm very like conscientious about like how I'm coming across <laughs> 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 it's something um, to think about all the time probably to an like, unhealthy extent it is weird because we're seeing this like shift now because now Gen Zers are adults and like millennials were always the young adults right it felt that way and now it's like um actually like we're old now yeah yeah no not that old is relative you know people live to be like 100 okay um but uh, so we're all still really young, but I wonder how they feel next to a Gen Zer, like over a hundred. They must feel so weird because also Gen Z is like the most progressive generation yet. You know, yeah. they're probably so confused. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> Lots of explaining. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we've seen. I just feel like even in the past 20 years, like such a massive cultural shift, you know, and mm-hmm. imagine being 100 <laughs> and being like, oh, all this started when I was 80. <laughs> I mean, <kind> of wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember in our like kind of like pre-podcast conversation, we were talking about like the hipsters of like the gen x generation were like coming up with like all these like new uh like business ideas so that were like kind of like going back to basics and mm-hmm. we were like saying how it's like you know kind of like our turn to like kind of like carry the torch it is it is you know like on the department we were talking about built by wendy and I think of her as like, I don't know, founding father, founding mother of slow fashion in a lot of ways. And it's like, you know, that was like almost 20 years ago. It's our turn to like carry that torch and, you know, keep these like slower arts like relevant and, you know, like that, like just carrying it on, I guess. I feel like millennials almost killed off all of this. <laughs> accidentally, accidentally, right? I mean, we, you know... Like technology turned everybody's lives upside down like really, really mm-hmm. fast. And then like graduating from college with crazy amounts of debt, mm-hmm. you know, a job market that is just shitty at best. We mm-hmm. all faced a lot of challenges that kind of like were more survival based than anything, but we also consumed like crazy amounts of fast fashion. Aww. But it's exciting to like even in the past year, see people more people, more millennials you know, revisiting their interest in sewing or rediscovering something that they used to do and couldn't anymore and really like carrying on the legacy of all of this like craft and all these skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I see a lot of cool TikTok videos being made of <laughs> I don't even have TikTok and I still see like I mean it, I guess it comes through on Instagram sometimes but I think yeah like Gen Z's they're getting back into like needle punching and they're making cool TikToks and they're making pillows and it is cool to see this like 
resurgence in fiber arts and mm-hmm. and it's even cooler to have like um we get like pretty young clients sometimes bring us like you know their favorite things and want to like learn more about what we do it's just really touching <laughs> I mean it's got to be interesting for the two of you because people are bringing you their favorite things they're like most prized possessions like even you know I sent you a dress to be repaired yeah. I that's like one of my favorite articles of clothing and I was so sad when it started to get a hole in fray because I was like I don't feel like I can repair this well you get the snapshot of what is important to people. Oh, absolutely. People love like telling us like stories behind the things that they bring us, which is like something I also really love. Like I worked on like helping um, this queer person with like getting a um, shirt and suit jacket tailored for them for like their elopement. I really like mending because there's just so much creativity and love in mending and it just really keeps you going. We were like just talking about heirloom pieces and the intimacy behind this work. And I like to be able to help others make creative choices and get to see their excitement when the order is finished. I think some people bring us things and they're like, oh, whatever you want to do, like take the reins, which is cool. And I like to do that. But I also like to, you know, steer them in a direction of where they want to take it. Like, are you a visible person? Do you want this to blend in or do you want to stand out? And it's, it's pretty like exciting to see the answers sometimes. Like (laughs) Very like polished ladies being like, oh yeah, I want to stand out. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. So (laughs) it's nice to like, yeah, offer that service. I think mending does help like boost your confidence because you're wearing something unique to you and you had a creative hand and choosing the designs, which I think feels pretty good to people. Um, And I also sleep better at night knowing that we've started a service that helps reduce textile waste in a creative Mm -hmm. ways, like keeping garments out of the landfill and extending its purpose is our main priority. I like recently heard what eco anxiety is and I certainly have it. Um, Me too. (laughs) And like I try to recycle, but I don't know if anyone else is and I can like really go off the rails with that. So knowing that I'm doing something like taking proactive steps every day to reduce textile waste and even like meeting others and, uh, you know, gathering a community who care about the same thing is really important. Um, And I would say even if people don't have anything to mend, uh, people still want to support us or at least like... (laughs) want to like tell us that we're doing a good job <laughs> and that they like what we're doing so there's a lot of motivation behind this work and that's amazing I I I hadn't even thought of the eco anxiety element of it but it would seem that mending especially professionally mending is a really good coping mechanism yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It really is. laughs> I mean for me like if I Back when I still had a job in an office, 
my ego anxiety would manifest itself in these like flurries of like going through all the recycling bins and lecturing people like you can't recycle salad. I will tell you, I mean, I've talked about it on the show before. We know that like there's actual recycling is actually pretty disappointing, especially plastic, you know, knowing that only 10% of all the plastic that's ever been made has been recycled. But so sad. And all so sad. So sad. So I feel like there's a lot of like wishful, I mean, we're all kind of wishful recycling, right? Mm-hmm. Because realistically, I mean, we like, I would say one of the biggest focuses in my household in the past couple of years has been to reduce the amount of plastic that we consume. And I'm really proud of how much we've been able to cut out. So that helps me with my eco anxiety, but like realistically, all of us are kind of wishfully recycling because only a small percentage of like the plastics we send are going to be recycled. But I think that manifests itself for a lot of other people in just like super wishful recycling. So throwing anything in the recycling bin with the assumption that it will be magically recycled, even if it's like half your lunch oh my god or you you know just like things that aren't recyclable <laughs> yeah, yeah that's not how that like shoes oh, yeah shoes. so you know something that i think like i think and i'm sure you experience this a lot when you meet new people at the farmers market or at pop ups there's a lot of confusion between like what is mending versus tailoring and i think mm-hmm. your average person thinks they're synonyms mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that must be somewhat frustrating <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. It's like funny because I feel like people also use like hemming, like the word hemming, like mm-hmm. with like any, like any operation, <laughs> yes. which can be so confusing. Like they're like, I need my pants hemmed. And I'm like, okay, well, like, do you want to like, do you want me to like do a fitting with you? Do you know your inseam? And they're like, oh no, like I need the I need the waist made smaller. And I'm like, well, that's uh, interesting. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all because most people don't know how to hem anymore. So well, of course it's all the same, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really funny. Um, yeah. And like, we do, we do do some like, you know, like simple alterations. Like we can do a hem, we can do a taper, we can like take things in, but you know, like we don't do any, like, like we're not going to do a wedding dress. Yeah. We're not going to do a bridesmaid's dress. Um, oh, yeah. Too stressful. Yeah, yeah. It's just too much for people who don't know. And it's like totally fine if people don't know, because these are lost skills. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. A tailor makes your clothes fit better. Whereas the mender makes your clothes last longer. So it's like the difference between changing the fit of something and like, fixing a hole in something. I actually used to work in a tailoring alteration shop. And I think I mentioned that before, but um, it was like, it had like a super fast turnaround time at four days from the time you brought your pieces in until the time the pieces were ready. Um, and one of our sewists actually like called this business, the Walmart of tailor shop. <laughs> Like, the alterations were cheap, and, like, we also had this, like, dark blue and white aesthetic going on with, like, the fluorescent lighting, so it was, 
it like kind of felt similar to a Walmart or like if like Walmart had like a tailoring and alteration shop inside it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who worked there were all really talented and they all really knew their stuff. And I learned so much from doing fittings there that I was eventually able to do some tailoring on my own outside of work. Um, and it just really helped inform our business model and have, you know, it has allowed us to offer some tailoring services. Um, yeah, it was like the most stressful job I think I've ever had, but like, it sounds stressful. Um, like there were, especially during like prom season, we would have like just a line of people coming in and just doing like prom dress after prom dress after prom dress. Like, we would sometimes stay like two or three hours past clothes, just like getting everything kind of like organized with like all the prom dresses. I'd forgotten about getting your prom dress altered, but you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were also like a lot of things, you know, people would like bring stuff in to be mended and we would be like, oh, like we can't take this because. I, yeah, I think like tailors really strive for perfection and like mm-hmm. invisible as opposed to like making something wearable again or like, you know, they're really, I think they're afraid of like doing custom work or like getting like too creative because yeah, it just isn't really like what their business model is. So mm-hmm. that's another big difference. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, that they wouldn't be into like visible mending. But you're right. It is all about like the illusion that the clothes have never been touched, that they're like brand new. I personally don't know a lot of tailors, but um, I can't even count how many tailoring shops I've been to in high school (laughs) and like just going with like my guy friends to them for fittings and alterations and like... I remember feeling like I was just in a bad mall. Like there was a weird smell and... (laughs) Like these, those shiny ties and those weird like shirt and tie combo, like plastic wrap boxes Mm -hmm. that just feel bad for like men. Like that's what they have to use. (laughs) And um, I don't know. I just feel like the tailoring shops kind of did get the short stick on like the fiber arts world. Like, it's not a very approachable business sometimes. And I mean, they are kind of like teamed up with fast fashion because they need to have things matching for everybody. And like, that's part of their business model is, um, you know, probably wanting everyone to like accessorize for weddings and stuff. Whereas mending is like, it celebrates the individual and it gives you a more like attentive creative vibe of whatever you're looking for so technical sewing has its place I think tailors are great and they're definitely needed but I'm definitely more of a mender because I love to be a little bit wacky as we've already discussed (laughs) and the mindsets are just so different yeah definitely so the two of you own a business together but you're also best friends and this is the kind of thing that I feel like we're told we should never do is go into business with our best friends. So I want to hear how 
how you make it work and you know you're you're successful at it so you clearly are experts on making this happen oh I don't know if we're experts yet I mean it's definitely like a work in progress all the time like I mean neither of us really have a business background so it's something we're like constantly just learning together (laughs) (laughs) and yeah just kind of like muddling through together but um yeah I would say that like communication is key. That's like so so important. Important. Um and I yeah, I feel like it's like so cliche, but like communication is like just really important and like just being like honest and like yeah, just kind of like remembering like what's important to like say in like a certain moment and like what's not important. Um, and that's like something that I've definitely learned over the past year is like sometimes like I would like text Tia about something that was like not an emergency, but like because I, you know, we like want the business to work so badly, like it felt like an emergency. And then I was like, mm-hmm. maybe this isn't, this isn't like effective communication. Um, So that's like a big one. I would say defining roles and just being like really transparent about money stuff. Um, I personally take on the more like administrative role in the business. So like I handle the financial and like bookkeeping parts of the business, but I also make sure that everything is documented and that we both have access to all of the financial stuff. So there's never any question of like where the money is or like what's coming in or what's coming out. Yeah. Um, it's definitely important to trust the person, whoever you want to go into business with is like, I would suggest that you know them for a couple years prior. And, um, yeah, cause there could be like, there can be a lot of stuff that happens and you want to (laughs) you like choose someone that at the end of the day, you can trust to have your like the money that comes in with so that's Mm -hmm. that's huge and I mean I'm really thankful that Becca is like just naturally gifted in that department like she's shrugging but like she's really (laughs) really great at spreadsheets whereas I am not and I just don't really like have that interest in me either so like yeah, she she heeds in that department, and I, I trust Rebecca, and I know she trusts me, so we don't really have a lot of disagreements there, um, and yeah, like, defining rules are really important for the for this business to survive, like, um, you know, what's that saying? More chefs in the kitchen? It's just uh, too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, you, don't, you don't want that, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We kind of like put each other in our places and like (laughs) I that's Rebecca's area of expertise. That's great. Um, I like to make more of like the signage for the business and display props. Um, Like I like hand painted our flag with our logo on it and made a huge red paper heart with our lace trim and it had our slogan on it, which is we'll fix anything but a broken heart. And it had such a wild ride, but I think I have to remake it out of wood or something for this year. <laughs> but um, yeah, I also handle the shipping and 
they have like a special knack on how to source things. So like I we buy She's things. Really good studio. at finding a deal for like anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like anything. Anything. Um. So that's my area of expertise and I mean we alternate like Instagram post days like someday I'll post Rebecca will sometimes post um yeah we have weekly meetings that are really important it's where we can get together and that's where we do most of like we sort the mending orders and we pay each other, which is really cute. Like I'll write Rebecca a check and she will write mine. And then we shake hands. <laughs> and then we, yeah. And then if it's a good week, we'll be like, yes. And then if it's like not a good week, we'll be like, well, next week. next week. Yeah. Um, but those weekly meetings are great. It's a good time to just check in and talk about, you know, what works and what doesn't. Again, we're not, business people we didn't go to business school so there is a lot of um you know trial and error with this business at the moment (laughs) um but getting together and setting that time aside is great to like really fine-tune our operations and it's been um really great to move forward with that the downside is i mean you have to be open to criticism a little bit which I think we both like have learned to start to do that a little bit more. Like it was kind of hard in the beginning because again, we're both like really passionate about this, but um, it's, it's just what you have to do when you work in a two person creative business, you just have to remain open to the other person's idea and yeah, just maybe try it out. Yeah. I think it's been like, yeah, I, like, definitely second all of that, um, and I think that, like, yeah, being open to criticism has, like, been tough, but, like, also important, because at the end of the day, like, we both are on the same team, and we both want the business to succeed, and we both are, like, rooting the other person on, um, it's, like, not, yeah, it's, like, not a competition, like, we're just, like, both like trying to propel forward together um and if like one of us is doing well and that means the other one is doing well and um it has been like sometimes you know just this like weird thing where it's like oh like right now like we're wearing the business hat and mm-hmm. so you know, like anything we say to each other is like, this isn't personal, like this is just business. And then at some point, like we'll switch to the friend hat and like, (laughs) we'll talk about other stuff, but then like sometimes like the business thing comes back in conversation and then we're like, oh shit, like I got to grab my business hat now. (laughs) And yeah, it's like, I don't, yeah, so it's like, oh, like, I think I'm wearing a business hat, but like, what hat are you wearing? And um, yeah, it's just like, it can be really funny in that way. But like, I feel like we're like getting better with like, kind of just like, knowing when to turn it off. Yeah, same. Um, I would say another really important thing for us um, was writing an operating agreement with a lawyer. Um, Mm hmm. Very smart. Yes. Yeah. Which is something we like didn't do until a little bit later on, but like, I'm still glad that we did it, you know, at least like in the first year ish of our business. Um, 
And an operating agreement basically just like says what percentage of each business the person owns, what the expectations are, what to do if you disband. Um, And then like, yeah, you both sign it and it's something that you like can refer to just in case anything were to come up. Um, And, you know, we both of us hope that like this never dissolves, but it could happen. It could be on like good terms. Like one of us moves away and has a baby or like, you know, it could be like, you know, someday down the road, like we might decide that like, we don't want to do this anymore. But Again, that is kind of just keeping like the business and the personal separate from each other because, yeah, it's just like everything's very cut and dry in an operating agreement. Another area in which you want to keep the personal and business separate is finances. And this is something we learned from one of our mentors, Kate Booker. We love you, Kate. We love you, Kate. If you're listening, I don't know if you're on the <laughs> podcast, but. Um, the two of us took a business class from her, which not only taught us a lot as individuals, but it just also helped us get on the same page as to what the best practices were for running a business. Um, and yeah, that was something that she just kept really like trying to drive home with us was like having a business account, um, cause it makes taxes easier. And it also just for us, since there are two of us, it like helps keep everything really organized. We were really like splitting everything down the middle there for a while, which is just what you have to do sometimes to get started. But now we're, we're kind of like making some financial decisions to like put X amount of money aside for, you know, just our monthly expenses and maybe new things we want for the future. So um, yeah, it's good to see us grow in that way too. Um, but I will say like the, the realistic situation, as we kind of mentioned earlier, it is like having a serious relationship and <laughs> it is, it is, it's, um, which like TBH, I haven't really had that many serious relationships in my life. So <laughs> I like it has been, it's been a little bit challenging sometimes just to like be in constant with communication with someone and you know, like really wanting to give it to your all. Like I want to do good. I want Becca to do well. Like I want this to work. So it, um, it stirs up a lot and sometimes it's really not all like sunshine and rainbows, but that's just like part of the territory. And, um, you know, like a real, like a real relationship, things just come up and, you just have to deal with them. And I think we've been doing that. We've been trying to really get better at communication because um, like ultimately this is a creative collective and we both have ideas and we're allowed to have different ideas. So being able to compromise and communicate just cannot be stressed enough. If you're thinking about starting a business with a friend definitely choose a friend who you truly trust will be there for you in the good and the bad. Oh, this is just like, yeah, making me like a little bit emotional right now. I know. <laughs> yeah, this happens often. Yeah. I'm in more daily communication with Tia than I am like my partner. And like, it can 
be like just like really like emotional sometimes with like just thinking about like how I wouldn't be able to like do this without her Um, and that's like a powerful thing yeah yeah I definitely feel like Becca compliments me in certain ways like I'm really not one to talk a lot like this is kind of hard for me I definitely like to just like get the work done so like opening up sometimes is difficult and I feel like Rebecca is just a great um like leader and communicator and she really pulls stuff together to make it happen so she's been a great business partner and like really at the end of the day it's just good to have someone to fall back on like Mm -hmm. I I joke about this but we do both like get sick a lot sometimes (laughs) or like we just have busy lives things come up like I don't know my back hurts I can't like sew today or do something and um it's just nice to know that we're there for each other and like our business can carry on even if the other person is out and I mean COVID has shown that we're still able to get things done even if you know we can work together even if we're still apart I love that that is amazing I mean you are legally bound to one another it is the ultimate serious relationship (laughs) earlier today I was actually um, by the time this episode comes out this will be a few weeks in the past but I was talking to a reporter about you know, just like my experiences, like losing my job and the issues with the unemployment system and the people I've talked to on social media who are struggling too. And I've been really active in a lot of different groups that are trying to push for some systemic changes for both people who do have jobs and people who do not. And she was telling me how a lot of people, and this isn't going to surprise you two at all, I don't think, a lot of people have decided in the past year, you know what? I'm done with the regular job market. I'm going to start my own business. Like this is what my future is. And it, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And I, I'm sure as I'm saying this, you're both thinking of people, you know, in the community who've done the same thing. And we were laughing to ourselves. I mean, like, you know, not really like, oh, this is hilarious, but the irony of it all that starting a business is really, really hard and that that would be the easier option rather than trying to collect unemployment and or find a job. And I think this is a great transition into like, it's really hard to start a business. So how did you do it? I I sometimes don't know. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Like it just, I don't know. I think for us, like, it has been such a slow mm-hmm. build. And I think that, you know, again, like, if we didn't have each other, and if we didn't also have, like, other jobs to lean up against, I don't think it would have, like, come together as quickly as it did. It's always been, like, a slow build. Like, we we didn't take out any loans. We had the sewing machines, and we had thread, and we had fabric. And it was kind of just, like yeah, like, we'll, like, do one pop-up and see how it goes Mm -hmm. and just kind of, like, learning as we go along. I know that wouldn't work for every business model, like, especially if you're doing retail or something. It's not something that, you know, you, like, have to have product or you have to have, like, certain things for, like, other businesses. But, um, 
yeah, I think like just like balancing work and life and money and time. (laughs) The classic, the classic problems. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's been like really challenging. And I think that Mm -hmm. is like what kind of like keeps a lot of people from starting a business. Um, So yeah, I think, yeah, it's just been like keeping our overhead low Mm -hmm. and feeling like our risk is kind of minimized in a way um and yeah just yeah slow build yeah slow build and I mean lots of trial and error but just like being open to that and you're right like this isn't probably advised for other businesses wanting to start but I think it's gonna happen in a way anyways like unless you're a perfectionist and you know exactly how your business is going to go and everything's going to be fine. Like, I don't know if that's really as feasible and um, you just have to be open to learn from your mistakes. Even if it's like, if it does cost you more time or if it does cost you less money, um, just noting it for next time and really kind of like monitoring yourself and being open to being better and just knowing you're not probably the best. And I think just, (laughs) (laughs) telling your your ego a little bit it can be really helpful um Mm -hmm. and just like asking for help if you need to which I know can be hard for people sometimes it's hard for me but Mm -hmm. if you're unsure of how to do something or who to contact for something and um if you're able to just like ask someone who's maybe in a similar position it can really save you time and hassle into like finding it on your own um it's been really great for us to kind of be like in a studio full of people um like full of artists who are dealing with similar things like us like um you know what what did we do recently like insurance policies and you know tax seasons coming up so there's like some things like I probably wouldn't know how to do and I definitely want you know I trust my friends who are in the same position so I would turn to them for guidance. And I think just being open to seeking out help has been um, a great tip for us. Taking the business class Mm -hmm. was a big one. I cannot emphasize that enough. Like taking a small business class can make this so much easier because there's a lot of really stressful sounding stuff involved that you'll actually like learn how to do in the class. And I took a small business class Mm -hmm. back in Portland that was offered by Mercy Corps, but I know there are a lot of other uh, community organizations that offer that. So I would really urge anyone who wants to start their own business Mm -hmm. to take one of these classes. They're often free or very inexpensive and you're, you'll learn how to write a business plan and how to figure out how much things should cost and how to figure out all your finances, because that part is really terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the session that stuck with me the most is when we, we talked about money and how so many of us are so fearful to even fully examine our own financial situation or like people have so much anxiety about knowing their credit rating. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it can be so helpful to just get you started off on the right foot. And it sounds Mm -hmm. so boring, especially if you're a creative person, but it ends up being like really interesting. 
Yeah, I definitely was like, kind of dragging my feet to do it. Like, I was just like, not sure if I wanted to, but I'm so happy I did. And it really just like opens you up to a network of people too that like, again, are there to help you and help you learn. So um, yeah, definitely take a business class. Yes. Best money you'll ever spend, I swear. Because you might also realize in that like, hey, maybe I'm not into business. <laughs> also it's really great for networking which is like a term that I hate like I'm like networking but uh if you don't like the word networking which you know has a stigma attached to it maybe just like meeting other people who are doing cool stuff how about that yeah and just like I don't know being like willing to like put yourself out there to like meeting people too like you know, sometimes like we'll get like Instagram messages from people who are like, oh, I'm a mender. Or, like I like, you know, do stuff with clothes. Um, Like I'd love to just like talk to you about what you do. And like, you know, I think at first, like it can feel like a little bit not like, I don't want to say like scary or like weird or anything, but like, I don't know. It's like sometimes it's like, I don't know. Because it's like your your small business is like very, it's like your baby and you kind of want to protect it. And then you're like, oh, like, why does this person like want to know about like the ins and outs of our business? But like, then you like meet them and you talk to them. And it's actually like, you end up making like a really good connection with someone who like, might be able to like help you out with something else or like, you know, might just be someone who you can like, eventually like have a friendship with um so like yeah I think like just connecting with people and just like not um yeah like just like wanting to like talk (laughs) which I think we have like mentioned that like I do kind of have like the gift of gab sometimes (laughs) (laughs) I mean someone has to you know Rebecca and Tia will be back in our next episode to give us some mending and tailoring coaching, among other things. So stay tuned for that. That'll be on Sunday. In the meantime, please check them out on Instagram at oldflamemending or at oldflamemending.com. And if you need something mended, don't fret. You can send it to them in the mail, which I did recently. And I received my amazingly mended dress just a few days ago. I'm literally wearing it right now as I record this. And I have to say, I love it more than the original brand new version of this dress. Because the floral fabric that Tia and Rebecca used to mend it really adds like a piece of my personality to it. And there's something so magical about wearing something that was mended by rad people like Tia and Rebecca. Seriously, Mending is so magical, and I think it makes our clothes more special and more valuable. Okay, I said I have one more message from Kate of Undone by Kate, and I saved it for the end, which we've never done before, and it does feel uncomfortable to me because I really love routine, but let's just roll with it. I saved it because I have a homework assignment for you, so let's listen, and then we'll talk about the homework afterwards. Hey Amanda, it's Kate from Undone by Kate. I wanted to call the hotline today just because I wanted to see if there's anyone in the community that kind of has 
experienced this or has an answer. So basically, I got a DM from this account who I thought was a follower, you know, and was interested truly in where my vintage clothing comes from and and how I rework it. And so I basically let her in on this like company information, thinking that this was truly a customer or a follower that just wanted to know. And I feel like I built my whole company off transparency and like showing my customers how I um, sew up their shirts or, you know, make a garment. Anyway, long story short, she took the information and ran with it. And 15 days later, I created a carbon copy of basically my products, the product description, the product names, like everything was just a carbon copy. And obviously it was really upsetting, but I think the most upsetting part about it was that she was claiming that she is a sustainable vintage business when she is using just straight up shirts from Target and Walmart. And you can see that she's buying new from a cheap store, Five Below, Walmart, Target, you know, these stores that are mass producers that, and then she would resell it at a higher markup, which is almost to me worse than Walmart producing a $5 shirt because she's claiming and and making these, you know, her followers believe that she's selling vintage sustainable clothing And it's like, you can get this at five below and I'll teach you how to make it. So this is kind of what I'm seeing now a lot on these platforms is that everyone wants to be sustainable. Everyone wants to have the claim to fame of being a sustainable business, but they don't want to put the work into it. So it's like, there has to be some sort of a strict guideline that if your business isn't sustainable and if your shirts are are bought from five below or if your shirts are you know walmart shirts and you're reselling them and making people truly believe that they're making a difference and buying a sustainable shirt it's wrong it's so ethically wrong and forget the whole copying thing it's more to me that she's spreading false information and And I'm sure that people have bought from her and think like, wow, you know, oh, we're beating fast fashion, but, but it's just a disguise. They're still buying fast fashion under this woman's, um, company. She's just disguising it. And I think that's like a larger problem that we have. It's like total greenwashing and it's like how do we get strict guidelines in place so that this cannot happen that people can't just say that they're oh i'm selling vintage shirts you know there has to be some sort of a guideline behind it so i was hoping that maybe somebody on the podcast knows more about this since i am new and could could help me understand and maybe they have some more insight on it but That's all I have to say before I get way too lengthy on this message. Thanks for listening. Well, first off, I can't even with someone copying Kate and using shirts from Target and Five Below. But I'm also just like not surprised and I'm sure you're not either. So here's my homework for you. 
Kate is totally right. There is no hard and fast sort of like bill of rights for ethical and sustainable manufacturing. Hence, all the flagrant greenwashing. It's not like those people who greenwash the hell out of their brand are even knowingly doing it. And when we as consumers fall for greenwashing, it's because we didn't know what to look for or what to ask, right? So I have this idea. What if we write our own list of criteria and we can share it on closehorse.world as a reference for everyone in the community, especially the newbies, but just for us too. And, you know, people who want to develop sustainable ethical brands, they could use it as a reference. It's almost like if you build it, they will come and they will make the clothes that are good. (laughs) I would like to hear from you. What are your non-negotiables for this list? Obviously, I'm over here obsessing about how much workers are being paid and you know, the conditions of the work environment. But, you know, there's so much more. And I I think a, quote, good brand, one that is worth our money, is worth our attention, is doing more than just saving water and shipping in paper packaging. I feel like it's so much more than that. So let's make our wish list. You can call the hotline. The number is in the show notes. You can drop me an email at amanda at closehorse.world or you can send me a DM. I can't wait to make this happen. This community is going to change the way everyone shops, the way everyone works, what everyone wears. And I'm so excited about all the things we can do together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Of course. Of course, I'm going to ask you to do that. And tell your friends because that's how we get more people over here and get them to stop shopping Boohoo, among other things. Don't forget that you can find me and Clothes Horse on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. And every Friday, we've had a few of these now, I'm doing an Instagram Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time where I'll update you about what's happening at the blog, answer your questions about this week's episodes, or really anything else. And uh, this week, I promised to come in full Lolita garb, so you won't want to miss that. We've been having a pretty good time with these. I like them. At first, I was skeptical, but it's kind of fun. Even though I don't get to see your faces, I get to see your comments and know you're there, and it feels it feels like we're all hanging out together. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. If you need a new podcast, because, you know, don't we all? <laughs> Check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We are in the midst of an ongoing series about the aughts, the 2000s, the Y2K, if you will. And this week we talked about different kinds of hipsters and sort of their influence on the world today. And we have a really great call from Danny of Picnicware that makes me laugh cry every time I hear it. So you should probably check it out. (laughs) I'll share a link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.